Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, with an idea I agree with, is McGill. <laughs> it's I hit record as you were saying that, so I. But yeah, I I agree. I should go first this time. Oh, okay. Wait, are we actually doing the intro? Yeah, yeah. This is the intro. <laughs> it's a wacky one. They won't know what you said. I don't know. We could do it that way. Oh, uh, well, what I what I was saying was that uh, because Minds of Metal and Wheels Part 2, the campaign that I've been describing to you, because it is wrapping up this episode, I thought it made more sense for Empok's Finest to uh, to be recounted first before before I go and before we uh, we play around a bit and and brainstorm some ideas for potential future installments of the Minds of Metal and Wheels campaign. That's right. It's a very special episode, the Minds of Metal and Wheels brainstorm episode, where we also talk about the end of the second Minds of Metal and Wheels game. And if we mention that that's McGill Foot that's talking, if you don't know that, this is a weird episode to start on. But, um, you know, maybe we'll hit some real gold and people need to steal our ideas or something. Uh, not me! Uh, it is session 29 for me, which is episode 30 uh, overall, because we had a session zero. Um, over on McGill's end, we're seeing a chapter 18, but like we're saying, it's the end of the second campaign of Me Minds of Metal and Wheels. Which, uh, we've got all sorts of change in the air it would seem yeah a few differences and why shouldn't there be maybe it's a good idea to like swap up the template every now and again i think it's cool to have a special episode especially to mark this momentous occasion of uh finishing your second campaign when i still haven't finished the first in terms of uh recounting them for the the podcast yeah, so yeah what what act of your campaign are we even on Oh boy, I didn't number them so good in the early ones. I can uh I can figure it out though. Um let's see. We had one we we had the one that ended with the sand angels at the temple. We had then they went to hell. Then they fought the no no, then or the one where they went to hell was also the one where they were fighting Mourner and they ended up fighting Carmen the Immortal, the Hag. Um, and then they fought the Screech Owls. I hope I'm not skipping anything there. Uh, I mean, those all definitely happened. Yeah, so then, then they go and they fight the Screech Owls, and that, that happens with the... There's the other Hag, Nervosa, and they, they fought the Screech Owls and beat them. And then, I think after that, they were... Sent, yeah, then they started doing Frontier Ops in the Deathlands, and they started with uh, sort of infiltrating the Deathlands and fighting the Mentu dynasty. And now we are in the one where we're just uh, getting towards the end of the one where they are uh, exploring and uh, raiding the Nightside Eclipse uh, town of Southhaven in the Deathlands. So how many is that? Gosh, a lot. I was actually going to ask. Uh, I'm sure you've mentioned it maybe like five or six yeah i'm sure you've mentioned it on the podcast before but uh how many years did you run this campaign 
We're on number five. I just counted them out. And uh, this campaign took about two years, I think. I think each of the campaigns in the sort of Mpox series have typically been about two years. Right on. I, I would say each of the Minds of Metal and Wheels ones probably totaled about a year, but there were like a couple of breaks, like, you know, during the summer or over Christmas where we didn't play. So yeah, uh, about two years for for up to this point in my uh, in my campaign anyway yeah with with mine we were gen like i'm we're generally looking at two years with like a session every week but relic like every once in a while there is a week where we don't have a session or even two weeks where we don't have a session so here and there all over the place in the calendar those will pop up and like i'm not sure how many Basically, all I really have is the operations to go by. Um, so we're here on operation number 29 of the ones I've been. Uh, well, I guess 28, because uh, first one was just like an intro thing, you know, cutting down from episodes to sessions. I mean, I've lost operations. track of all the numbers at this point. <laughs> Lots of numbers. Um so I've got Operation Virulent Projection, and the thing is, I don't have a lot to talk about this time, which really just uh, means there's more time to talk about our, our special ideas for Minds of Metal and Wheels and celebrating that. Um, but the reason I don't really have much to talk about is that I was sort of... I was continuing to do something that I've already been talking about a fair bit in the last two sessions, which is that model of taking a level from Wolfenstein 3D, recreating it in like a sort of mechanical Dungeons and Dragons 5e uh, dungeon crawl conditions, and then running that as like the different uh, factories within this settlement of South Haven. And so the previous episode I was mentioning like, Basically, I had one factory that was laid out like a Wolfenstein level like that. And then in the basement, I had the labs, which were effectively like a series of challenge rooms with reward rooms after them, uh, each consisting of like an encounter with a standard type of enemy uh, bolstered by like a, a vampire as a leader unit effectively. And um, having done that, after the first sort of factory dungeon crawl, I then basically went and got another map from Wolfenstein for another factory dungeon crawl to be the next building that they cleared out. And so there's not a lot new to talk about in terms of like what I did in the session because it was pretty similar. Um, I think it's worth mentioning at this point it, or just like going over it again is that each of the sort of uh, challenge chambers in the previous basement had a vampire in it. And I went over who those were. Um, we specifically in those, we had um, vampires, uh, Jaws, who got imprisoned in a demiplane. Uh, there was one named Lokash. There may have been one named weasel i'm not sure if he was uh stationed there yet or i think it actually was augustus but anyways there's a bunch of vampires i named last episode the thing i want to say is that there was one named kaboom 
which is another reference to a Jagged Alliance name. Uh, but they actually killed him. So there was one vampire that they like full out is it coming back that they destroyed. And there was another one that like the type of magic that they needed to really destroy a vampire um, was fairly powerful and they like really needed to land it right so that the vampire couldn't just turn into mist and get away. Um, but apart from that one that they managed to destroy, there was also Jaws, who I mentioned uh, Alistair took prisoner by trapping him in a demiplane. So they've had a fair bit of success at this point. They basically, they've taken on the, like some really tough bosses and in some places defeated them in some places outright destroyed them. And in some places just like imprisoned them, which is almost even more of a morale booster for the party. I'd say in terms of like having power at like proven power over the enemy and like an edge over them because at this point again they're like quite high level uh if alistair's casting demiplane for example uh you know that he's like easily like uh you know upper upper teens you know maybe mid-teens level sort of thing so i have a question Anyways. um how do you decide when you want to do a dungeon crawl in my case usually when i'm running like a dungeon crawl adventure it's because i just didn't have time to set anything up dungeon crawls are really easy to wing but i don't know when like how do you decide like okay i'm doing a dungeon crawl for this one and then the next one's going to be more plot based or i don't know what's the thought process there so back when i was running this it was I'd say it was more driven by the spirit of experimentation because as I mentioned over the course of this campaign, I'm like getting more familiar with the fifth edition rule set. And with that sense of familiarity, I'm feeling like I can try more things. And one thing that I think I mentioned earlier in this act is like, I had not really trusted myself to do a just like fully laid out dungeon crawl like this uh in the past and so this was just sort of like i think i designated this as like the act where i would play around with this um even though i only did like really a couple like like in terms of like the full uh level layout and whatnot but yeah i think in this case it was an issue of just like i hadn't done it before and i i wanted to do it like i felt it was sort of uh, important to get that like a sampling of all the different types of of D, D game you can run um but now that i'm more experienced i would say that like when i'm laying out an act uh i generally just try to have as much variety as i can so i think that now i would be less likely to do two sort of dungeon crawl missions in a row though i might um, I think that now it's more like something that I, ahead of time, I have planned, okay, I'm going to do, like, I've got an idea for a dungeon that I'm very excited about that I'll put in this act, but then I'll also do this and I'll, I'll, I'll do sort of like a battle scenario and I'll also do like an undercover, uh, diplomacy scenario, like any now I am at a level of comfortability where I can see the full variety of like sessions that I'm familiar with how to run or, or operations that I can think of. And 
I can just say like, okay, I want a good variety and pick and choose. But back when I was running this session, it was much more like, what do I feel ready to take on at this point? And once I was ready, once I was able to say like, I feel ready to do a dungeon crawl, I kind of wanted to get into it just for the sake of having that experience. Because again, I hadn't played that much uh, 5e at the time. Um, and so like, similarly, I, I did kind of break it up by having these different, uh, operations where like the previous one was less of a sprawling dungeon and was more just like a sequence of chambers, like very linear that I could lead them through. Um, like I, I never, I, I don't think I have, or at least in this circumstance, I did not actually like have just wall to wall uh, dungeon crawling um, but it was something where like I felt like I, I think that one thing was that like I didn't want to just do like w one level of a dungeon crawl to get a sense of like what running a dungeon crawl was like in 5e I think that I put in a second one because like I wanted to have a little bit more uh, time to play around with it and like that that's again just very much about establishing experience. It's not even that I did that much different in the second one. Um, I had, you know, like I mentioned, I, I took the same secret passages from Wolfenstein. I inserted some traps. I had, uh, well, I had a, a bunch of traps at a very specific point, but, but we'll get to that. And, um, and, you know, with the secret passages, instead of hiding like treasure or, well, I did hide treasure, but it just included magic items, which Wolfenstein doesn't have. Um, the real thing to mention about this session... Well, first of all, I mentioned a bit beforehand, is or, or previously in, in previous episodes, that um, the idea is that in South Haven, these areas that they're exploring, they're discovering that they are big sort of decrepit nightside eclipse factories and what they never figure out um but i know i knew the whole time as a dm is that these factories are producing a biological weapon that the nightside eclipse is planning to deploy basically later in the campaign this is going to be like a major point in the narrative later on and so um these factories were basically uh producing this um biological weapon virus 33 and as they move through the factories i would have generators and machines and stuff and i would just um i would keep note of what the players did with any of the machinery if they uh tried to smash it if they interacted it with it at all and they didn't know it but every once in a, a while, they would try out a different kind of interaction with one of these machines. And sometimes it would actually, again, they wouldn't realize, but they'd be like shutting down part of the production for Virus 33 that would affect um, later in the campaign. So Sounds like a good opportunity this... to include one of those wacky machines I've done for our tavern picks on previous episodes. I mean, I think that they were afraid it was going to be something like that. Like they were always, I, I think that the only thing that stopped them from just like outwardly destroying every machine they found was the fear that the machine would do something crazy or like blow up or something. And so, 
um, by the end of this session, they had actually basically um, unwittingly shut off half of the generators for the Virus 33 production. And I took that into account later in the campaign when I was determining basically how how effective I wanted to, the weapon to be, like how um, how much it would permeate the setting once it was deployed, for example. So in the future, if I'm running an op where like a town has been hit with Virus 33... Uh, because they've shut off half the production, maybe they can't produce enough, and therefore, like, they have advantage on the saving throw later. And again, this is all stuff that, like, they I was tracking their interactions very closely, and they, like, were just kind of trying stuff out, seeing what worked, seeing what happened. Um, until I sort of revealed this to them out of character, they had no idea that they had actually accomplished anything uh, <laughs> by, like, messing around with switches. Accidental heroes. Well, and the thing is, they could... They, they didn't, like, shut down everything. They kind of, like... It was like they were... Um, they were afraid to do any one thing too extreme lest they get an extreme consequence. So they were like, okay, we, we flip half of these switches down and half of these switches up and i'm like well okay they're on and off switches <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah they did manage to disrupt the virus 33 production but also uh the real thing to focus on in this session and the real talking point uh this is something you had asked me about long ago when you were talking about um your first campaign of Mines and Metal and Wheels. This was the session where the Mpox Finest were captured by the Nightside Eclipse. Nice. It was the end of the session, and you had asked me about this, like this, I because you had mentioned Hunts and Kane capturing the heroes of Mines and Metal and Wheels, and you had asked me about like uh, imprisoning the players, torturing the players, that sort of thing. And I very much had this exact scenario in mind, but didn't want to get ahead of myself. And in it really, I can't tell all the stuff that happened that I that I did with this right away. Uh, some of it needs to be saved for the next session. But I labored on this a lot because it was my first time trying this kind of thing, and I didn't know how the players were going to react to, like, basically sort of having the controls wrested from them and being told, like, sort of cutscene style, like, you are captured. Um, with Hudson Kane, if you could refresh my memory, was that something where they were, like, surrounded and basically like knew they had to surrender or were they forced in some way they were outgunned and sort of the final straw was peck and paw turning on them as well like they thought maybe we can get to the ship maybe we can get away he has too many forces for us to fight but maybe we can at least retreat and they got back to the lantern and right before they were about to take off uh peck and paw pulled his gun on them and took them captive there. So it was sort of a combination. They were they were overpowered, but also one of their own had turned on them, and just even that shock was enough to make them go like, all right, I guess we're captured. But it's funny, you know, thinking about that, I'm reminded of uh, 
another campaign that I played with Mike, the guy who played Dietrich Abendroth. Uh, I think it might have actually been the first uh, campaign that I... Hey, he's got a new uh, computer game. Yeah, now. he does. Penrose. Check it out. Um, yeah. I think it was actually the first campaign I ever DM'd for him. And there was one point where... Uh, I had the vehicle that he was in. I was going to end on a cliffhanger where the ve- I said, you know, the vehicle you're in explodes and you black out. And he was just sort of stunned by that. And he's like, oh, my God, did I die? Like, what happened? And I was like, and we'll pick up next session. And I remember him just going like, oh, that was supposed to happen. That was supposed to happen. That was supposed to happen. Like, he was reassuring himself that he didn't screw up and kill his character. He's like, oh, oh, OK, OK. There was nothing I could have done. Right. I definitely I, I definitely understand that it's funny I, I had mentioned to you that I'd been watching uh, the show The Expanse and uh, I was watching one of the seasons recently and I was saying to my sister who I was watching it with like you know at some point these players have just got to realize that the DM is expecting them to give up <laughs> like it's one of these situations where the protagonists just are facing such overwhelming odds that it's like now there's got to be some narrative way they get pulled out of this one there's no way they figure it out for themselves because <laughs> I've, I've definitely been in that position as a player where i'm like okay there's no way Th- this is one of those things there's no way that this is my fault and and uh, it's funny that you bring that up but so I labored on this a fair bit about how I was going to do this because I know I knew that I wanted uh, to end with the 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 party getting captured, and I had a pretty good sense of how I could make it happen. But you know, there's always that like you know, there's no perfect DM plan. Like, in fact, I would argue that the more you depend on something to happen the more frustrated you're likely to make yourself as you like try to force the situation to get that way. But like on its face, the simple thing that had to happen was the players had to go into the elevator to go down into the lab level below the second factory, just like they did the first factory. But this time they were going to get trapped in the elevator. It's just an elevator trap. Um, I may have like gassed them or something while they were in the elevator. They were definitely like rendered unconscious, that sort of thing. Um, but like, there was always this thought of like, oh, what if they get like super paranoid all of a sudden outside the elevator and they won't get in or something. And, um, I was thinking, or, or I was thinking like, oh, what if they have some crazy spell that lets them get out of the elevator or something? So I remember even, like, I had been uh, playing... Uh, I was just a little bit into the first game of 5e that I had been playing in uh, around that time, and I remember being at one of those sessions and sort of on the side on my notes, like, doodling potential ideas for, like, a foolproof trap, basically. And I remember one of my friends looking over and seeing the thing I was drawing and just laughing hysterically because it looked so much like I was just trying to fuck my players over completely. It was, like, elevator, bomb in elevator, bomb shoots thrapnel, which ricochets around elevator. And it was just, like, the wildest, like, goblin death trap that, like, was way overkill like did not need to be that insane and i think it was like really close to the session that i decided 
that what I was going to do was I was basically just going to tell the players up front that this is how this session was going to end was um, there is going to be a point where we basically enter like cutscene mode and the transition into the next session, you are going to be captured. And I basically cleared that with them ahead of time. Um, and that was a lot easier than having to like try and predict anything they could do or, you know, figure out some foolproof way. I just squared it with them narratively outside of the game. Like, okay, this is going to happen now. And like, make sure they were cool with it. And they were, uh, it wasn't a big deal. Um, it was also like, again, it wasn't that much, like they didn't have some sort of strange fit of paranoia before the elevator. When I said like, okay, the elevator, this is the trap, um, and sprung it on them. It was like, okay. And that was the transition to the next session. And so I don't know, like, does that, I, I feel like I said that more or less when you asked me the first time. But, like, do you have any questions about that, or...? No, nah, that makes sense, just, like, running it by the players in advance. Uh, I suppose the times that I do it, I rarely do it... In fact, I don't think... Nothing comes to mind. No instance comes to mind where I've, like, actively, quote-unquote, railroaded a player, like, mid-session, going, like, now there's a cutscene, this is just gonna happen, you gotta roll with it. Usually when I do something like that, it's at the end of a, of a session as sort of the lead in to the next thing where it's like, and you're captured and next time you'll find out what happens. Um, yeah, I think I think it's worth noting that like each of the examples we've mentioned so far has fallen into that category where you end the session like that. Um, and yeah, I think it's also worth saying like... Uh, just the sense of like, you know, maintaining that sense of fairness for the players. Like, you know, you, I, I wouldn't want them to get into the elevator and be trapped and then like be really frustrated that I did that to them, basically that I did that to them and like, didn't give them a way out. Um, and I think it was just like my way of curbing that sense of frustration was to be like, this is, this is going to be a transition and it's going to end with you guys getting captured. I think that's a perfectly elegant way to handle it. It went over pretty well. Uh, it all went pretty smoothly. But I'll tell you, when they woke up, there were some things that they were pretty unhappy about. Can you guess what they were? They were all vampires. No. Um, all their stuff was gone. All their sick magic items had been taken yeah, from the. Right. <laughs> oh yeah, they were. Oh, well, we'll get to it. Take that's, away that's their toys. <laughs> it always creates drama. The crazy toys that the crazy toys that I gave them before I had the DMG. So they, I was just like guessing at what a magic item would be, and some of them were very, very powerful. <laughs> Oh, I mean, see, now I'm really intrigued. I mean, I guess we'll cover this next time, but did they, are they gone for good? Are those OP magic items that you had just made up? Have they been taken away forever to balance the game? I mean, uh, I'll say that the they managed to get some stuff back and some stuff they didn't. And, Ooh, very uh, curious. 
we may we'll, we'll get into this next time but uh you're not far off i think <laughs> you've got the right idea we've got to balance that game well <laughs> the paladin had a battle axe that was constantly healing him i mean yeah that's a bit too much <laughs> all right so now to the main event yeah here it is so I'll start by doing sort of the wrap up of Minds of Metal and Wheels part two. Um, we I ended the description of last session with sort of the conclusion of the main battle, because this was all kind of leading up to a war and there was a big kind of final climactic battle. And after that, I did a similar thing to what I did at the end of Minds and Metal of we Minds of Metal and Wheels Part One, uh, which is the fiasco style kind of rapid fire montage. Rather than role playing a bunch of scenes, I I sort of opened it up to the players so that everybody could talk about like what they wanted to do, and we could all kind of collaborate on a satisfying conclusion for the story. And I really do find that that works really well when the players are really invested and you they've sort of overcome the odds. They've taken care of all the stuff that I've set up for them. It's always good to sort of get their input on where the, the chips will fall in the end. And so like the first order of business was they go back to Mars. They revive the they make sure the king has been revived from uh, his, you know, quote unquote assassination where he was shot with that that paralytic Martian uh, drug. And uh, and I thought he was just in hiding this whole time. I didn't realize he was asleep the whole well, time. Well, OK, so he wasn't wasn't fully asleep. They just go they go back to make sure that he has recovered and to like reestablish communications with him because you're right. He's been completely absent from the campaign basically this entire time, except for when they've gone back in time to visit him. And uh, Abendroth makes a point of uh, like reestablishing good diplomatic relations between Mars and Earth and kind of doing it right this time and and uh, trying like just do, doing it the correct way in the most diplomatic way to establish peaceful relations and also like get the full story on the different races of Mars, try to diffuse any tensions. Uh, as I recall, it involved rolling a lot of diplomacy checks, but we allowed it to happen. Was was this mostly Abendroth? Or? It was mostly Abendroth, but also like Melville was involved and uh, Abendroth had been knighted at the end of the last campaign. So he had a lot of sort of political pull that allowed him. To well, and, and I understood Abendroth as being some sort of envoy to Mars uh, after the first game or, or like the. Yeah, he's well, he, the ambassador. Or something? Yeah, he's kind of like the ambassador between him and Quelm. They're kind of like combined ambassadors and cultural attaches. And uh, so they the relations between Earth and Mars are repaired uh, as best they can be, of course, because who knows? Maybe in part three, there will be another threat from the red planet. Um, so those it, it, it's 
actually thinking on it, it was rather the same as the end of the first campaign in that like Lady Anna's primary goal here is to expand her family's empire. The actual details of her adventures, they're sort of like small potatoes in her mind. What really matters is that she kicks ass and her family's uh, vodka baron empire can spread throughout the world and continue to, to earn the family name more money. Morwood is reinstated into the Royal Navy. He gets his ship back for good. And uh, and he and Quell just sort of get together and go off to have adventures together. Um, and uh, because Isaac popped out of the time stream, he like pops back into the time stream and disappears where he's gone. They don't find out. But the ultimate conclusion, of course, is uh, once like all the the details of the business have settled down, the players reconnoiter at what would be Abendroth's apartment, and they're all having a drink there. And it ended on the note of like, there's a knock at the door, but before they go to answer it, the door opens and Professor Sutter steps in. Of course, he's he's fine. He's alive. And I sort of, I just sort of cut it to cut to black, cut to credits on that moment. Just to give him that finally final sort of surprise. It was all wrapped up in this neat little package. It's the opposite of Empire Strikes mm. Back. It's true. It is the opposite of Empire. Your part two doesn't have a bummer ending. Well, yeah. I mean, I hadn't had a, a part three in mind. I believe at this point, what tends to happen is after I conclude a campaign. In the, like after that final session, while everybody's like decompressing from having wrapped everything up, there's usually some discussion right away as to what kind of campaign the players wanted to do next. And if I remember correctly, because I don't have any notes on this part, but I'm pretty sure after this one, the players were like, all right, we've done a lot of steampunk. Let's switch up the setting. And I think the one they wanted to do after this was a post-apocalyptic campaign uh, using the D20. Thank you had mentioned Yeah, that. using the D20 post-apocalypse source book. I don't know if that's the next one I'll talk about on this program, though. Maybe I'll maybe I'll go to a different uh, a different setting. I'll have to contemplate it. Um, but yeah, so there never wound up being part three to Minds of Metal and Wheels because the players just sort of wanted something different after doing a bunch of steampunk. And I, I guess that sort of I don't know. Are we already at that main topic of discussion? I'm really curious. Well, I I have a lot of questions All right, let's have about uh, your your game in general before we launch into this uh, big brainstorm. Lay them on me. So, um, first of all, I'd asked you this outside of the show, but I think it's worth establishing: is what is the timeline of the game? Particularly, uh, having said what you just said, like when did this game end in the like in universe space 1889 yeah chronology of things i i didn't note the ending date but it was like 1891 or 92 um i had basically each of these campaigns much much like in reality like it took you know, one year to run each of the Minds of Metal and Wheels campaigns. And it was sort of in-game. It was about, like, one or two years for each of these as well. Because there's a lot of, like, interstellar travel and a lot of uh, international travel going on. 
So I had the time frame be like between the two campaigns, like maybe three years, starting in 1889. Okay. Uh, next question would be what level were the characters when this all ended? Would you say by the end? Oh, man, I wish I had. <laughs> uh, so spoiler alert to the listeners, but I'm in the process of moving and I've packed up the RPG binder with all the character sheets in it. But I believe by the end they were like level, I want to say like 13, 13, maybe 14. So so a fair bit of room to uh, to grow in in part three is what oh, I was certainly. Yeah, they didn't quite get to the epic levels. There's. Something about the the sort of setting that I touched on a little bit um, in a previous episode when you were talking about uh, there was a sky battle with a triad airship uh, in California, I think. Yeah. Um, and I noted like, man, there's like no laws in the sky here. And that is something that interests me. Like... So when uh, when there are sky ships in this setting, they have to be made using liftwood, which has to come from Mars. Is that correct? Not entirely. There are also more traditional like airships, you know, like the kind of like Zeppelins, but also the kinds of things you might see in like a Final Fantasy game or even that cartoon Teddy Ruxpin where they're sort of like Zeppelin based. They have a big Zeppelin style balloon over top of them. And those right. those ones move real slow. It's the the speedy spaceship ones, the X-wing style, you know, jet fighter ships. Those are the ones that you need liftwood for. So the the player's ship, the Lantern, that one can really zip around at high speed, and the Martian ships can zip around at high speed. But a lot of the Earthbound ones are much more sort of slow, almost like like battleships, but in the air. So um. Is there any kind of like trade treaty for liftwood between Earth and Mars? Like, is there anyone on Earth who has access to liftwood? In the time of the campaign, only the heroes. Uh, but part something I should have mentioned is like part of what gets established in the diplomatic relations at the end of the second campaign is allowing earth to use liftwood to make ships and sort of you know combine uh, their by their technologies combined they both cultures will sort of move into the next phase of their civilizations what's interesting to me about that is that um it's still a like earth in this setting is still very much a setting of nations and so while you didn't say it what I'm hearing there is Britain is going to get liftwood. You're uh, absolutely right. I mean, that's sort of... It's another point that wasn't touched on in-game, in but this is a very, like, Brit Britain-centric campaign. It's all very based around the great, you know, the, the monarchy. Great Britain uh, being at the forefront of of like technological advancement and things like that. So yes, you're but right. But it it is worth mentioning that like Britain isn't the only empire that exists within the setting. Like we we established that Germany 
uh Otto Varn Bismarck is in the is on the scene like we effectively still have those sort of like colonial empires all set up we just haven't there's been a lot in the background like basically this is the thing I I uh I really seize on when I'm like ooh what could number three be about is like oh well what about all that stuff we didn't cover like like France what what's been going on in France this whole time that is very intriguing. I mean, I think because so much of the source material that I was drawing inspiration from, so much of it is kind of set around, like it's all, not to mince words, but it's all very like white, you know, like Tintin, yeah. Indiana Jones. It's all it's yeah. all sort of rooted in that kind of old adventure serial stuff and Jules Verne as well, for the most part anyway. Maybe, maybe... Maybe that's what you should be bracing for is for me to bring my woke rendition of Space 1889 to your setting. I mean, I'd love it. Good way to switch it up. Um, but yeah, I mean, really all really my decision to do it that way is entirely informed by just like by the, the shorthand of pop culture lore. Like everybody understands Indiana Jones. So if you make a reference to something that's kind of like Indiana Jones, their mind will fill in the blanks and do the heavy lifting for you. So it's fun. It's funny because I think that this is something that we are starting to see um, gaining momentum within pop culture it, with things like uh, I'd previ previously mentioned Lovecraft Country which started which started recently, but also I don't know if you saw the AMC uh the terror season two oh, yeah. infamy. Um but it's like this whole again, I I sort of uh <laughs> I described it as like the woke rendition. But really it's 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 interesting how we're seeing this uh sort of more of a push to sort of look at these old stories, these historical stories and like sort of pulp stories and re-examine them uh, from a new perspective that says like, well, what if, what if you were the outsider in this scenario and whatnot? Um, I think it's also worth mentioning that both of those examples I mentioned are like horror uh, at their core. Like they use horror at mm. their core and, you know, it's always scarier to be the outsider. <laughs> I think just uh, says much to be that takes much to say that. So take the players out of their element is what you're saying. Well, uh, certainly I've basically just saw a lot of opportunity to sort of like challenge uh, things that have been sort of taken for granted in the past. Um, so shall we start just like digging into it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, do you want do you want me to talk about some of the ideas I had? I've written down like a short list of ideas, but really, I think there's only one true winner among them. I'm I'm going to hit you with. OK, so basically for the listeners, I had already ahead of time told McGill what my uh, title was for this theoretical Minds of Metal and Wheels part three uh, on the basis that you might be able to glean some clues off that title and get some ideas. Uh, also in my notes for this episode, I included a bunch of sort of large topics that I'm sure just looking at them, you get some wild ideas. Um, but just what I want to start off with was based on this title. Uh, do you have any ideas of what I've been cooking up? 
The title I came up with is Space 1896 Aether Flux. So, um, immediately what came to mind was uh, His Dark Materials. You familiar with His Dark Materials? Only, like, uh, indirectly. Like, um, I've had friends that were into it, and I, I think my brother was into it for a while, but I have never properly looked into it so um i mean there's a lot it is it's more like an atom punk kind of world but uh i did draw some inspiration for it for minds of metal and the wheels and one of the sort of i guess i'll say spoilers for his dark materials like the tv show the books but one of the major plot elements in play in those stories is that there are other dimensions and that uh, you can see into those other dimensions with the correct alignment of something like ether. Uh, I think they even call it ether on the show now that I think about it. But uh, so my immediate thought when you said ether flux is like, okay, we've been to space. We've been through time. Maybe the next step is to pass through the veil of reality into alternate dimensions. So... Um, that's not where I went. I didn't touch alternate dimensions. I like, but I will say like, it's a good guess because I definitely, when I was first trying to think what I would do, that was one of the things that came to mind. It wasn't just, um, beyond the veil of reality into alternate dimensions. I also considered that the place to go for number three might be, like a Lovecraftian thing, like uh, like have, beings beyond space and time. I have exactly sort of thing, that like, written in my notes as well. Was uh, I was thinking like you go you go full Cthulhu, and the players have been meddling too much in the space time continuum, and so the seams of reality start coming apart, and Cthulian eldritch terrors start entering the world. And the players have to deal with them. That was one of the, the potential ideas I had as well. So it's really funny because like definitely we we definitely have similar ideas or like we were starting from similar places. But I'm very proud of myself for having like kept reaching and I didn't like it's not like I went beyond those ideas, but I managed to come up with something that's like not the first thing you think of like it's like just far enough that it's like it will be a surprise i think once i hit you with my ideas All right well <laughs> um well well i now i want to give you i i want you to do your notes first so i can okay. see which okay. ones you got well, right I'll, I'll i'll do i'll do a few of these but i'm gonna save the main one um so as i mentioned I consider doing Lovecraft stuff. I too have been watching Lovecraft Country, and and you know you're not enjoying it as much. I'm not enjoying. I, I mean, don't think you know what. Like I'm not. It's it's funny. You mentioned the thing about J.J. Abrams, and like I think it's totally visible. But I was not thinking about it at uh. all until you mentioned it. <laughs> so I think, and it's. I will also say you said that. J.J. Uh, Abrams' fingerprints on it stick out like a sore thumb, and I was like, "That's two finger metaphors." Oh yeah, I guess it really does. <laughs> this, his fingers stick out like thumbs, man. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, 
yeah, not to get too too off topic talking about Lovecraft Country, but uh, I thought that the setup was really good. I like the premise and I like the main characters, but I find it to be very narratively sloppy. That's what I'll say on that one. But anyway, so, you know, the the players, Abendroth, uh, and all of them are, are meddling too much in the space-time continuum, and they've awakened some eldritch horror that starts entering the world. And because they're, you know, a cross between adventurers and investigators, I could do sort of like a, like almost like a steampunk X-Files thing if I wanted, or something like that. Um do more investigations like they did with Jack the Ripper and but have it be more of a uh, Lovecraftian bent and also because um like my my inspirations for Minds of Metal and Wheels are always these these combinations of stuff I love from pop culture and then also classic literature especially literature sort of around that time period so you know thinking about like Jules Verne or that sort of thing, do a journey to the center of the earth campaign. That could be fun. Delving. I did consider yeah. that one as well. Hidden, hidden the earth. hollow, hollow uh, earth, you terra, know, with dinosaurs in the middle. Why yeah. not? thought that was a pretty good yeah. one. Um, and it's funny. I was doing a bit of research and in space, 1889, officially Venus is basically mm-hmm. that it's lizard people and dinosaurs right. and big Aztec temples. Yep. Um, and then I was also thinking about, uh, something like murder on the Orient Express, where I was like, I'm going really, I went real big, like, you know, inter interplanetary war, star wars, you might say with, uh, parts one and two, maybe it would be fun for part three to like strip it way down and do like a prolonged sort of series of adventures where they're on a long haul voyage or they're like trapped, you know, in a ship that's that's a, going across the ocean, but there's a murderer and they don't know who, or there's a weird entity on board and they don't know what. Um, but you know, that seems more like a, an an act arc rather than the arc of a full campaign. And then uh, the the fourth sort of idea that I considered, but I was like, nah, I mean, it would be fun, but all right. This is something that uh, off off the air we were talking about the expanse. And you were saying people are scared to do like a Lost in Space style show. Well, my immediate thought was like, how about Avondroth tries to invent like faster than light travel and they get flung into the far reaches of space. And then you just do like Star Trek or Lost in Space. You could do it really episodically where <clears throat> each adventure is a new planet or something like that. Uh, that one has the potential for like a very long kind of campaign very episodic where the through line is just trying to get back home so those were those are the four ideas that i considered but i went like nah i probably wouldn't do any of those i definitely so obviously there's going to be like a fair bit of like inspiration from various properties all over the place but like i have mentioned that i've just recently caught up with the expanse and the expanse definitely did like play a role in some of my ideas um but i did also stumble across things when i was coming up with ideas that were like oh and i could take from this and oh that's like a whole new thing um but you've got some big idea that was like your main okay you want you want to hear that before getting into yours well 
Yeah, I'd, I'd be down right. to hear that. Yeah. So the the setup is this. Uh, the players start noticing like like there's something wrong. They're starting to notice like strange changes around them that they can't put their finger on and like they can't remember what's wrong even there's like something going on with their minds it turns out that someone in the distant past is changing things and the timeline is like skipping and reworking their memories so that you know things are changing and they but it's so far back in the timeline that there's nothing they can do about it and they have no choice but to go back in time again and try and figure out who is changing the timeline, except something goes wrong and they go too far back and maybe get stuck in medieval times. And my immediate thought was like steampunk army of darkness. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking evil dead when you said medieval times. So steampunk army of darkness was ultimately the idea I had where it's like, they arrive in medieval times, they get caught up in another conflict, but this time it's like, it's almost switching the dynamic where it's like, this time they're like the Martians, they've got the technology that is far advanced. And so they're able to help out whatever side have this technological advantage. But even doing that starts altering the timeline even more. And it becomes just like this vast messy array and if I did that, I'd probably be tempted to do the alternate ending of Army of Darkness, where then they go too far ahead in the future and they wind up in like a post-apocalyptic time frame. But uh, it would be it would be really fun to, or you know, I say Army of Darkness, but also uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles three, uh, the movie Ninja Turtles three, yeah. where they go back to feudal Japan. I think there could be a lot of fun in doing that, like, tr- you know, fish out of water stuff, kid in or a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, if you want to do uh, more classic literature. And also, it would be really fun to kind of, like, pull with it, pull at the player's heartstrings a bit and see if I could convince any of them to stay in the past, because that's always one of the conflicts of those kinds of stories, less so with Army of Darkness, but like... Ninja Turtles 3 as they finally get their time their time staff back and uh, I forget who it's like Michelangelo or someone's like no I want to stay in the past and, and that's real sad so that was ultimately the idea I landed on and especially like I think that would be another case where it would be maybe a third of the way into the campaign before they even get back to medieval times. And the first third would be much more of this like temporal investigation where they're like, somebody is changing things in the timeline and they have to try and figure out first, they have to figure out what's going on. Then they have to figure out how to get to the point in time where this person is. And then of course, everything goes awry and they go too far back. Went too far back, Marty. So, Interesting. I feel like I had considered maybe somebody messing around with time travel or something, but I hadn't really, I I certainly hadn't uh, taken it that direction because I hadn't considered, I basically, I toyed with that idea and didn't really come to any big plot line with it, basically. I was like, maybe there's someone, uh, but then they chase them in time. Uh, I I don't know. Like, I wasn't really feeling it, I guess. Um, Biff has I got the DeLorean. We, we have to stop I, him. I, I mean, I do just want to say that, like, the real thing that I think I was channeling there was I have always said that, like, the ultimate 
men in black movie if they ever do it is going to be one where just like a criminal has the neuralizer and can wipe people's minds because you could destroy the entire world man oh yeah it's Um, funny you were you were about to say you know the ultimate men in black movie and i thought is he gonna say is the one with time travel part three (laughs) no no it's the one where they take something that they have and then do something really cool with it but those cowards won't do it um but I, I think that actually does uh, fall in line with something that I think I stuck with more is like this idea of like I was trying to just use the trappings of what I had heard so far in the storyline. Basically, like my idea for season three is very much rooted in the previous two games. I think like the style of it and the uh, pacing of it would be very much similar. Um Although I I just got to say before we move on from the thing about wanting to stay in the past, uh, in the video game Brutal Legend, uh, very early on, a character suggests to the protagonist played by Jack Black, a roadie, that he will want to get to get back, get back to his own time away from the fantasy metal world that he has found himself in. And he's like, no, he, it's like not even a consideration for him. <laughs> he just wants to stay immediately. Um, so my idea, uh, going back, the clue is in space 1896. It's not so much in the aether flux. Um, now, I'm going to lead up to this basically because I've set this title of Space 1896 and because we basically established that number two ended bet- like, like either years 1981 prior. or 82. Yeah, that gives us about four, three to four years, I'd say. Um, and so I think like a lot of this is ideas I have where because I don't have the sort of personal familiarity with the campaign or specifically with the player group, I would sort of need to coordinate with you how this would all go down. For example, one of the key things that happens between uh, Minds of Metal and Wheels Part 2 and Part 3, as I imagined it, um, and this is something that you could maybe start off as like playing out like a prologue uh act or something um it would be very similar to how abendroth is like alone when king selden gets assassinated in part two like this would be basically a scene that is mainly just for him but i think you could also uh get more wood involved this is actually another question i want to ask is like if there was a minds of metal and wheels part three who do you think would come back Gosh, it's really hard to say. I mean, it would definitely be like Lady Anna and most. I, I was assuming I was assuming your wife. Yeah, <laughs> it would definitely be Lady Anna. Uh, I should also note like a teaser for when uh, you're done with your idea. But I also asked Caitlin like what she'd like to see in part three of Minds of Metal and Wheels. She had a very funny answer. I'm really I'm really excited to see what you and her think of my idea for like the hook for the Varkalak storyline in this installment. Okay. Well, I'm really intrigued. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. uh, So I I would say like the most likely players to return would probably be uh, 
Lady uh, Lady Anna, Dietrich Abendroth, Thomas Morewood, and then like maybe Rath McGrath as well. Okay. Um, so, uh, would Isaac be a possibility or oh, still sure. basically like NPC? Okay. Well, all right. Interesting. So like Isaac, the Steve who played Isaac probably wouldn't because I mean, the, the reason that he wasn't in most of part two is because he went on posting because of his job. So he'd probably be more of a like secondary player and, I, I don't know if I could guarantee his involvement, but I'm sure that he'd make an appearance anyway. I think I'd be I think I'd sort of been assuming he'd have a similar like NPC cameo role. Most as the likely previous yeah. one. So like. Um, so. It would be up to you when this would happen, and there's a lot of factors for like where I would place this, but it's somewhere between, let's say, 1892 and 1896 and if you were to play it out as like a prologue scene i think it would be abendroth and morwood are on mars and abendroth is basically acting as the ambassador to mars uh morwood is there um because of his relationship with quell does this all sound right so far okay there is, um, you know, they're, they're showing up for basic, like, uh, you, you know, Abendroth is there for a basic sort of diplomatic check-in, you know, uh, summit sort of thing on Mars. There's maybe, like, other delegates from Earth, but all around there is, like, signs of, like, civil unrest. There are hill martians and high martians like mountain martians just like in droves protesting basically they are protesting effectively unfair treatment since the war um like like it's basically a situation like world war one where like the uh punishments that germany was hit with in the treaty of versailles were like the antecedent to more strife in the future and so you have a similar thing where like you have the hill martians and the mountain martians are like raging against being oppressed uh after uh their failure at like sort of i guess you'd call it revolution what they did with germany so anyways that's the there's like tensions are high but um the martians like the canal martians the king selden and whatnot they are just so technologically advanced like there's nothing like while they're all there there's and like there's no like violence or anything it's just like there's nothing the mobs outside the gates can do to like break through basically like the the martians are just like secure in their like technical technological superiority um is basically there's just some sort of diplomatic summit going on. Morwood is is seeing Quelm, and then something happens. All of a sudden, every all the Martian technology starts going haywire. All the liftwood ships start like it's like physics is just broken for them all of a sudden. Some of them start hurtling towards the ground. Some of them start shooting off into space. Some of them just start spinning wildly and all the people are thrown off. Um, 
and it's chaos and like all everything just starts falling apart ships are crashing into the cities the riot, like riots break out with the protesters they all just start pouring in it's like they were just waiting for this moment they start crashing into the city um the martians start evacuating Abendroth has to hurry to get King Selden. Maybe King Selden dies. I don't know. He's hurrying to get the Martian higher-ups to safety. Uh, Morwood and Quellen are desperately trying to survive this calamity. And in the end, it is only the ships that have, like, the high-speed space liftwood drives for, like, interplanetary travel that are able to get away before, like, doom just befalls the Martian city, the Martian capital. And they've lost communication with the surface. There's no telling how many of the, of the, you know, the high Martians or the canal Martians, whoever Selden is. Um, I got a bit confused cause I was doing the research and I took like what was actually in the lore of 1889 and what was in your story. So like, I mean, it's, it's know. a bit of a mess. <laughs> They're all just Martians. We're, we're basically, Basically, there's there's the city Martians and there's the hill Martians, and let's just say it's that uh, the canal Martians are the city Martians, you know. Yeah, that's all right, right? Okay, so um, maybe King Selden gets away. Maybe he doesn't. I think King Selden probably gets away, but it might be more impactful. It, again, this is the kind of thing that like you would have to measure it. Um, but the remainder of like the fleet that gets away, they are basically forced to flee to Earth, where they then are forced to like live in exile. And that's Quelm, uh, like the the most important leaders that they could save from the Canal Martians, all that sort of thing. Um in the meantime, since that happened, uh Communication has been lost with Mars. There's no liftwood coming out of Mars. And Abendroth is, like, obsessed with figuring out what happened on that day. He's trying to figure out what it was that just destroyed Mars all of a sudden. Like, destroyed all their technology. The cataclysm. Um, and he's, he's working on it for a long time. He's working on it up until 1896. When a uh, scientist by the name of Marie Curie comes to him with a new theory of something called radioactivity. Oh, snap. And together, they determine that radioactivity, when it interacts, in, interacts with aether, creates something called aether flux, which is basically wild magic, chaos magic, which you could basically just run exactly as it is in 5th edition, like, you know, there's wild surges. It does unpredictable things. But, like, again, it's also, like, it can interact with um, liftwood. Like, the the aether generators and whatnot on the liftwood ships would then cause the liftwood to, like, behave completely erratically. And this is what brought doom to the Martian people. And Marie Curie wants to team up with Abendroth to go back to Mars and figure out what happened. And that's what uh, the team gets back together for. Uh, what do you think so far? Okay, so there is a, a cataclysmic event where radioactivity 
combined with ether just causes everything to go haywire on Mars. And so Marie Curie and Abendroth team up and get the gang together to, to solve the mystery of what caused the cataclysm. Have I got this right? Yeah, that's where the 1896 came from, is that's when Marie Curie came up with radioactivity. That, I mean, that's really oversimplifying it. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on board. I love, I love the, the alternate history stuff, bringing in, bringing in actual historical characters. That, that sounds great. And having Marie Curie as an uh, NPC is kind of great. I like it. Um, and she is just the first of, I think, three important NPCs that would be sort of NPC members of the team in this campaign. Um, but going back a bit, I also wanted to say, like, so another part of, like, what I was drawing on for this was, like, I really wanted to draw on, like, um, what, like, like, I was drawing on stuff from the two campaigns that you've described so far and what I know about them. But then I was also trying to sort of like cross-reference that with my actual knowledge of like history. And so that is where like the Marie Curie connection comes in. And also just like, I, I had decided at some point early on that I wanted it to be like radiation is the thing this time. It's like, they have not accounted for the atomic age. And that's the big, um, that's the big thing that they are going to have to head into is like Aether is going to start behaving erratically once they realize uh, what radioactivity ah, is. Basically. I like that. Um, so, there is a lot of potential in that. So the other thing is that since uh, Liftwood has started coming to Earth based on the treaties that you were talking about at the end of the previous game... There are now, uh, like, Liftwood sky fleets in, like, you know, it's it's one of the things that the empires of the world want to have is, like, a, sky f a Liftwood sky fleet. And one way or another, Liftwood has either been synthesized or supplies of it have been stolen by uh, certain groups, but it has gotten around to the point where, like, a lot of people have access to liftwood ships. They only have a limited supply. Like no one has an like an infinitely replenishable supply of liftwood and so nobody has like an infinite um fleet, especially not Britain once their supply is cut off, once uh they lose their connections in Mars. So, um this leads to the sky wars. Basically, historically what i was realizing was like naval passages specifically canals are such a huge part of the 1800s in terms of like political development when you think about the panama canal the suez canal if everyone has super flying ships that's like not even a thing the the canals would become like wasted investments if anything yeah. because you can just supply everything anywhere and so instead of having the sort of slow build up to the explosion of world war one that we had in reality instead you have basically five years of total war in the sky all the time because everyone is trying to control the sky and basically like 
this is sort of going back to that moment I had where I was like, man, the triads have a sky ship in California. What the hell's going on? It's like, it's everybody has sky ships now and everybody is blowing each other out of the sky. And what this also leads to is, you know, you don't get shipwrecks with their supplies lost in oceans all the time. You have liftwood ships going down over populated land areas all all the time and so um like societies and people who would normally have no access to certain things are suddenly getting access to weapons supplies everything because it's just falling out of the sky and it's led to this just like the skies are sort of in like Everyone is fighting for the skies. This is what the sky wars are, basically. You even have situations where people, you know, people are going on sort of entrepreneurial uh, Andrew Ryan quests to build sky cities. And, uh, you know, you you even had a sky city, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. So you have the sky cities as well are sort of like their own faction within this like huge sky war and their cities being shot out of the air and they're having to ally with uh, empires of the land. And it's, it's madness. It is complete um, free for all in the sky. And what this leads to is, uh, well, it leads to some interesting turns of fortune, which will lead to another one of our uh, sort of team NPCs, which I will get to eventually. See, I really Um, like that because it does build upon the stuff that was set up in the first campaign and like explored and that the players went there. But like, yeah, you're right. All of these different factions could come into play where there are sky cities and that like even the underwater city could start sending you know, amphibious craft into the air to fight on their behalf. Right, exactly. And so so suddenly you have World War Sky. Um, nobody knows what's happening on Mars, but I'll tell you what's happening on Mars. All that radiation, the hill Martians are down with it. All their crazy organic technology and whatnot, it's all just mutating and becoming even more powerful, and they're gaining new abilities. It's like, this was the time where I wanted to basically take that, like, Jules Verne spirit of, like, not knowing how science works so it can work however you want it to, and it's just, like, it just becomes, like, Marvel radioactivity on Mars. It's like, you know, there's mutant hill, like... When they get to Mars, there's going to be hill Martians that have, like, evolved to have, like, or, like, mutated to have basically, like, toad, like, uh, big, like, um, like, gullet. What, what are those toad things called? Oh, like the the throat <laughs> sack kind of a thing? Yeah, yeah. Have, like, one of those. And then they, like, they basically put, like, um, combustible crystals in that sack and then spit, like fire shot like basically they can shoot like volleys out of their mouths and like all all the martians like they've got giant animals of all sorts that are just mutating out of control basically they've got a crazy empire of like bio mutant super stuff and they're being led by the empress Avela, who somehow like be i mentioned that it's like the protesters were just waiting for this to happen empress Avela saw the doomsday coming and led them to that victory they she told them that on that day 
all the Martian society was going to collapse. The question is, how did she know? But I know that too. There's all these secrets. Um, I even know where the radiation came from. But anyway. Well, don't hold uh, back, man. I want answers. Yeah. I, I just want everything in like the right order, you know? Um, so, oh yeah. The, the other thing I want to touch on with the uh, sky stuff, and I did, I, this is also just straight up like inspired by the expanse, is the idea like there are now like generations that have lived entirely in the air and they are like the sky people are like basically it's like everything we know about high altitudes already they have just like internalized as part of their being so it's like they're they're all kind of like emotionally high strung that's like you know the all the things of like they they get drunk easier it's like i think i had come up with an idea that they were like inherently thin-blooded or something and they have this sort of like medicine that they take called flotrin which is actually like sort of to help them like accommodate um because of their like weird altered biology and that's just straight up taken from the expanse and all its stuff about like people who have lived their whole lives in zero g um Anyways, so the thing is, we got to get the team back together. You know, Morwood is invested because his lover, Quelm, is living in exile. Doesn't know what's happened to his planet. Maybe he's got family that was left behind. Who knows? We got him. Abendroth, he's been trying to figure this out for, for years. And now he's finally got the way that he can fix it. The the The, you know, I think a large part of this is also like, Abendroth has become this guy like we talked about in the werewolf one like oh I'm so smart it'll literally be easiest just to cure werewolfism it's like I think that this is the idea that this haunts him as like the problem he could not solve and of course I also don't want to take away Marie Curie's uh discovery right of course but it's I think it's it's true like like, at that point Abendroth had sort of become kind of a Tony Stark-esque super genius where like it's no problem I can't solve. So when he comes up against an unsolvable problem, it's just like it's always on his especially, mind. He becomes obsessed. Especially when it's like, well, all the all the stuff he could research, like the most important stuff to research, it's all on Mars. And, you know, uh, I think also another thing is like Britain is so invested in the Sky War, they are reluctant to send ships to go check out what's going on in Mars because they don't want to lose them. Um, like the, the tension is so high between the empires on like, who is going to control the, the sky routes to say diamond mines in South Africa and whatnot. Like, um, the fact that you can literally name a resource and go get it, uh, has just changed everything so completely on a geopolitical scale. Um, but the thing is, also, I didn't really have a hook for Wrath McGrath, but I do have an NPC who would like probably match best with him. Anyway, so uh, skipping over, uh, what I want to get to is the Varkalak hook. So I think that similar to between number one and two, it's like, well, Lady Varkalak has been on her adventures, but like by the time of the new campaign, it's like, She's just kind of bored, right? Like, she's looking for the next adventure. Right. 
And um, she all also she usually has the lantern. She she insists it's her ship because her father initially funded the first expedition. And that's going to be important if uh, Britain is not going to be lending out ships because of their political situation. But something happens at the old Varkalak Manor. Something perhaps no one could have expected. Can you guess what happens? It explodes. No. The old matriarch of the Varkalak family, Ertzabet Varkalak, a multi-century-old vampire reawakens from her <laughs> century slumber. Uh, yeah. And she has some wild ideas. She, basically, the whole Varkalak family is, like, inherently deferential to her. It's like, oh, oh my God, it's, it's, it's old lady Varkalak's back. And she is, like, I'm wondering if maybe even she is, like, a source of inspiration to uh, Lady Varkalak, like, Maybe that's too much of a retcon, but, like, the idea that, like, there was previously this great um, adventuring heroine of the family, and uh, then it turns out she wasn't gone at all. She's back. Um, but my idea for Urtzavet Varkalak, so first of all, her connection to this is that she also knew that the, thing, that the wave of radiation was coming. She didn't know what it was, but she knew that, that like, a terrible calamity was coming from beyond Mars. And my idea with Urtzabet Varkalak is that, like, in the olden days in of Varkalak, she would have been considered a scientist of sorts. But really, Urtzabet's specialty is I want to explore where, like, so we've talked about how in this setting, you know, there's, if you want a magic ability you invent it yeah exactly i want to explore the sort of halfway point of like pseudoscience basically urtzabet is a scientist by way of alchemy and astrology and maybe some of her ideas are correct but some of them are just straight up made up and there's this constant tension of like well, Ver she clearly knows something because she, like, wakes up and she's like, oh, has the thing on Mars happened yet? And it's like, well, what do you know about that? And it's like, oh, I, I dreamt it. I knew it was coming. And she definitely knows something, but her methods vary from, like, just, like, whack, like, pseudoscience to, like, things that sound like maybe they're pseudoscience but actually turn out to be correct. I'm picturing a like, lot so of, she's like dr frankenstein equipment uh yeah i'm also thinking a lot of like oh well uh we should all make sure to drink my uh uh the varkalak stew tonight uh for the for venus is in the second house of aries and that means that we will have a slight resistance to poison if we do <laughs> just like very like kind of to the point where it's like it's like you're sort of rolling your eyes like okay Urtzabet, sure, we're all gonna wear these squirrel tails in our hair, and that's gonna help us somehow. And maybe it does, I, I, but maybe it doesn't. I'd love to see, like, the intersection, er, er, like, the the inevitable scene where Abendroth is talking to her, and they're just going back and forth with different forms of, like, techno babble, 
where hers are all sort of new agey techno babble and his are all like, uh, well, we need a machine with a base plate of prefabulated amulet surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing. Blah, 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 blah. No, what we need to do is recite the ancient words of Adam from the Akashic Record, and then hopefully Paimon will hear us, and then we make a sacrifice of an appropriate number of animals. I'm thinking three. And then maybe the door will just open for us. I really don't think we need to go that far. What we need are six hydrocopic marzal get to work on the laser. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get to work on the laser. Um, so yeah, her basically she is a scientist in the in a very kind of eye of newt uh, school of science. And uh, I particularly, I think one of my initial ideas coming up with the character was this idea of like Urzabet Varkalak instead of Urzabet Bathory. And there's like this rumor that she bathed in human blood, but actually she just kept a ba- like a bathtub full of animal blood that she could do like, completely baseless scientific experiments with like <laughs> like oh it seems that uh, the disease is only passing through at a rate of uh three liters per full moon and it's like no all the blood is contaminated what the hell are you talking about <laughs> i like that old incorrect mumbo jumbo science um so then we've we basically got the team back together, and I'm figuring somebody just says, "Well, we need some muscle. Let's call Rath McGrath." Um, but I'll tell you why they're going to need the muscle is because uh, so we're going to have this expedition to Mars. We got Abendroth, we got Lady Varkalak, we got Morwood. Um, I don't know if Morwood would b- bring Quell or if he'd feel that that's too much of a risk. Um, We've got Marie Curie, we've got Urzabet Varkalak, and then, um, basically, this guy by the name of Jim Costello is going to buy his way onto the expedition. And this guy is the richest and most powerful man. Basically, imagine, like, a classic, like, just the classic crossover of, like, a gangster and a pirate captain. And this guy is like, he's, uh, he's mixed Irish and South African descent. He was like abandoned by his father, grew up working diamond mines, but he's one of these people who struck it lucky with just like a driftwood ship falling out of the sky. And he was able to go from like basically a slave to a pirate king and he is now like he controls all these diamond mines throughout South Africa, the very same that he used to toil away in. Um, he's he's a bad dude, but he has like clawed his way up to his position. He is a powerful dude. He is a rich dude and he is rich and powerful enough to say, I want to be on this expedition and just th- like the governments of the world are like, well, shit like maybe the players can keep him off the lantern but he's the kind of guy who can say no britain will give me a ship and they will and so this guy jim costello he is basically sort of like the secondary villain of the storyline and he is like but he starts off like 
not he he's planted within the party, but not like a traitor to be like Peckinpah. He is openly hostile. He is an angry guy. He is a violent guy. But I think that this would be actually the best place for Rath McGrath to fit into the story is that like basically somebody needs to be on the ship to keep Jim Costello entertained by fist fighting him regularly <laughs> because it's one of the only things he really enjoys. He's like, he's not charming. He won't try to get on the player's good side, but like he'll want to fight Rath McGrath. He'll want to fight everyone really. And it'll be a good match for Rath McGrath. And I'm just, I've always imagined this scene with him since I came up with him of like, they finally go to fight like in a ring area or like a cargo bay of lantern and they go and Jim Costello's got like just dozens of like diamond encrusted jewel encrusted rings like his hand, his fingers can barely bend because they're so covered in jewelry but then he takes off his jewelry before the fight and i i wrote the note actually his knuckles look like tiny volcanoes they have been bloodied so many times and not allowed been allowed to scar over like he does this so often he like the other thing the other character i'm kind of thinking of is like in that show warrior uh the big like tough irish mob boss um who's just like loves to fist fight basically i kept thinking of um, uh the depiction of ernest hemingway in midnight in paris where he's just always drinking and right. always ready to throw down so yeah that's basically that's this guy jim costello but of course the question is why does this guy want to get on the expedition to mars and he's going to keep it to himself and it's actually going to become maybe important to the character's mission overall. But what he wants to do is he knows about the way Aether Flux can mess with ships. And he wants to be the first human in the world to have Aether Flux bombs so he can sink the fleets of everyone else in the world and be the king of the oh, skies. Oh, man. He is a bitter, angry, violent dude who's got bad plans. It's also, uh, he's strongly inspired by the character Raven from Snow Crash, where his end goal is, I want to nuke America. Um, you know, he just want he has been planning all his life to just give the biggest fuck you to the world that has, like, just been nothing but chaos to him. Uh, and, uh... Again, the the twist here is that it's not a villain that is outside the party, but it's not a villain who is like secretly going to betray the party. It's just a villain that the party has to get along with. And are you envisioning this being a case where eventually like he'll have a change of heart, he'll turn out to be a good guy? I can't like immediately think of an example but there's I, there's totally been like movies I've seen where it's an expedition and the money is just like he sucks. He's always making dumb decisions that get the whole party in trouble, that kind of thing. But then eventually in the end, he like sacrifices himself or proves his worth. And suddenly, you know, the party likes him after all that. Is that the kind of thing you have in mind for this guy? My plan is for him to be a villain and my plan is for him to be obviously like 
just a bad dude with a bad attitude um, with a bad, like he's a gangster pirate king. Uh, and maybe the players will like like him for that. Maybe they'll respect him even though he's kind of an asshole. But like he's never going to reveal his plan, his end plan, I think. And I think he's always going to be planning to get back to Earth and use this technology he's come up with to try and get the edge and like take over. But the thing is that his idea of an aether bomb might end up being the key to the mission uh, that ends up happening. So I already explained like, uh, and the characters would realize this going in, like what happened to Mars is a huge wave of radiation that wave of radiation comes from beyond the asteroid belt. It comes from a race of basically kaiju. I'm stepping into... This is when I realized that I was stepping into some Pacific Ring. But it's more specifically than kaiju, it's specifically like a race of, like, Godzillas. Like, imagine, like, space dragons, but they're all, like, Godzilla, like, they breathe atomic breath, and they, like, thrive in radioactivity. And the wave of radioactivity is basically this kaiju species in order to prepare like space, like solar systems or areas of space for nesting. They like basically purify it with radiation. They have, it's not like they didn't even like, like humanity and the Martians are basically just pests to them that they are trying to clear out before they try building their nest in the inner solar system. And they have not come beyond the, the asteroid belt yet um, because they haven't, like, eventually they are going to try and send further waves which are eventually going to reach Earth and beyond. And then once they've fully uh, irradiated the solar system, then they're going to move in and uh, probably wipe us out. Now you've got me thinking is, of those storylines where it's like, the moon is an egg. Kind of. I kind of just wanted to take like the idea of like, you know, we've gotten to Mars. We haven't covered the asteroid belt or what's beyond it. And in my head, I just went, here there be dragons. There, And then I went, oh, there's literally dragons. Yeah. Beyond the asteroid belt, there are going to be radioactive Godzilla dragons and really they're just trying to make a cozy home for themselves and we are just like the pests that they happen to be pesticiding before they show up um so the expedition my idea is basically there would probably be a fair bit of like establishing stuff like adventuring uh in um earth oh this is the other thing is to sort of cover my ass with the whole time travel element. Uh, the radioactivity also makes time travel, like, time travel makes you sick now, basically, because of the sudden, like, irradiation of the solar system. Now that there's so much radioactivity, it's like, if you time travel beyond the point where that happened, you start to, like, if you time travel for a long period of time, you become very sick and even short bursts of time travel, which you can do will make you like nauseous. Um, and so I think, 
I also like that because it, it allows you to do sort of like the galaxy quest thing where it's like, oh, we're just going to jump back like just long enough to fix one mistake and like we'll risk like not be like being sick in that moment just to like make that one critical thing happen. Yeah. Um, but it also prevents people from just time traveling and like warning the Martians and evacuating the planet. Yeah, I think that's another good solution. Um, I should say another thing and it that would I also... really like that you've done, uh, something that wasn't done in the first two Minds of Metal and Wheels is uh, scale, playing with scale, having them go up against something like really gigantic, like a space dragon. I think that'd be pretty cool. I mean, they went up against a Skycracker, but not the same. It's not intelligent. It was more like just a big ship. So now this is maybe the part. Oh, I guess uh, I guess theoretically, if you're actually going to run this and your players are listening to this, they should have stopped listening ages ago or else this whole thing's spoiled. But um, my idea is basically a lot of it will be about them going to Mars and dealing with the Martian revolution and also like um, Selden or whoever is left of the Martian higher ups that are living in exile will have this idea to like rally the, the loyal Martians that still exist on Mars. But then when they get there, it's going to be like kind of a tough ask to get these people to, you know, return to their loyalties after these years that their leaders have been in exile. And there's certainly going to be people who are sided with the Hill Martians at this point. So I would definitely want to explore a whole lot with that. But then like the big critical thing would be when they have the revelation of like, there are these massive creatures putting out these waves of radiation. Um, the key is going to be not to fight those creatures. Like, uh, they're just going to be so powerful. Like they've literally got that Godzilla atomic breath. Maybe like there's sort of a scene where they try to fight them, but then end up having to like evade through the asteroid belt or something. But then that's when Jim Costello is going to just float his idea of an aether flux bomb. And really the idea here, an Aether Flux Bomb could work, but ideally what the players need to come to is like some kind of equivalent to an Aether Flux Shield that basically they want to use the radiation in the asteroid belt and pump Aether into that to create Aether Flux to the point where there is like a field of Aether Flux that basically shows that by irradiating this solar system, it's actually becoming more unstable and less of a hospitable place for these monsters to live. So it's basically, it's not the realization of like, how do we fight these monsters? It's the realization of like, oh, we're a pest that they are just trying to like smoke out. We need to show them that like here, there's a chemical reaction that makes that smoking out process dangerous to them. I like that too. And then it's the, op the opposite of ending with a big fight is ending with diplomacy, right? I mean, diplomacy through just like diplomacy, like, like I don't think you'd be able to communicate with these things, Yes, but you could visualize that situation of like, Oh, I'm like spraying mosquito spray on a mosquito hive 
and then the mosquitoes just get super powerful and attack me or like or like the suddenly the spray just starts catching fire and i've got a much bigger problem on my hands like it's the realization of like we're the mosquitoes and we need to do something that would like even register on these guys's to make, radar to make them know it's not worth their while exactly i like it man i mean this is an amazing idea and uh and yeah and and also there's like with the idea of like the whole martian revolution and the fight on mars is there's like the conflict of the martians being like there's there's this belief that like she is like a mad empress who believes herself to be a prophet and stuff but the thing is she was right she just like Erzabet Varkalak, she knew that the wave of radiation was coming. She wasn't crazy. She looks crazy. She looks like a mad tyrant, but she obviously got some sort of like vision that told her what was happening. And so uh she's not as mad as the as say King Selden would like the people of Mars to believe. This is all very intriguing. Can we play it? <laughs> I mean yeah, the question is, do I have to yeah. run it? <laughs> I love it. That's an amazing idea. Really cool. Just, uh, I like the different kind of levels of it that you also, have. Where it's like every- I also just want to say, Urzabet Varkalak, I mean, I, I, there was actually a point where I was like, maybe, is it too much to have a vampire? And then I remembered Nathan Garrett, and I'm like, oh yeah, there has to be a yeah, vampire. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's totally in keeping. But I really, I really like the idea of like, you know, the further away from Earth we get, the bigger in scale everything gets until they're finally dealing with these gigantic, you know, monster space dragons that are so big that you can't even, like, there's no reasoning with them. They don't even notice you. You're just like a puny bug. And how do you stop something like that? It's neat. You can only get their attention enough for them to destroy you <laughs> and that may not be the best course of action uh but yeah i am very intrigued to see what uh caitlin thinks of the urza oh, she's gonna love that stuff in particular um because i love the idea of like you know like like lady anna is like basically the coolest chick in the world like she is the heroine to be. And then it turns out there's like an older one who's like, yeah, you're okay. I've been around for like 300 years, though. I used to do stuff like this, too. <laughs> <laughs> I asked Caitlin what she wanted. If she like, what do you, what do you think part three of this should be? And she went, I don't know. Like, maybe we're all old and it's like that one, you know, getting pulled back in for that one last mission and then she was like and if i had my druthers we'd go back to the renaissance <laughs> man that's that's not far from your medieval no idea. no, no um, I, I only i went further back and they aren't quite as old in my idea but yeah <laughs> i had definitely considered the idea that they're like that they had gotten old or something um but obviously I opted against it with the 1896 call initially. And I think the real thing was like, 
especially knowing that they were only like level 13 or something, I think this would be more the campaign to show them at their like at their peak, at their like most powerful right. rather than like kind of over the hill. The time this this would be the time that they literally save Earth and Mars and anything else that's living beyond the asteroid belt. I love it. And then when they get home, they got to stop Jim Costello from. That's right. Yeah. I, I love that you sky. I love that they're antagonists on every level. So, uh, that was a pretty long one. I didn't bring anything for okay. the tavern because I figured we'd just be doing this. Um, well, how are you cool to keep the tavern yeah, for next yeah, time? Yeah, absolutely. A very special episode of Mines and Metal and Wheels. That's really campaign. good. You're giving me a lot to chew on. I can't wait to run this by Caitlin. Man, uh, yeah, yeah. I've definitely. Uh, I'm also. I'm also wondering if like maybe Urzabed is the one who like initially came up with the Varkalak vodka or yeah, something. Yeah, totally. Like, I I I always. I think the real thing is like with Urzabed. I would love to explore all the nuances and idiosyncrasies of like varkalak history as this weird like sovereign state and and it's a um, neat idea because in this case it's not it's like someone from the past coming into the future basically so you have yeah. the inverse of what we've had in previous camp the previous campaign where they go back in time it's just like you know fish out of water but in the opposite direction and very confident that they are not a fish out of water <laughs> Right. Just like very, very prepared to like immediately retake the reins of the family and just pick up like they had <laughs> never left. <laughs> Except for that weird prophecy. I love it. So I hope you have all enjoyed this special episode. Uh, I never said the date earlier, so it's it's actually the 1st of September 2020. And uh, it's been session 29 episode 30 and uh i've been your host tom lando if you want to get in touch with me you can tweet me at narnog n-a-r underscore n-o-g if you want to get in touch with me and mcgill or our us in general you can check us out on facebook uh comparing campaign on facebook so we got going on there and then if you want to see uh supplemental material side stuff I think here we just like like we mentioned a whole bunch of shows and movies and stuff. Oh yeah, stuff. that'll all get on. So there. maybe it'll just be a whole bunch of that for this episode. But uh, yeah, if you want to check out our WordPress, our supplemental materials on WordPress, our comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. And uh, is there anything else we want to close out this episode with? Level up your characters. Not me.